0: Welcome to the next podcast from Millinery Info. This episode is with Justin Smith, the milliner and creative behind J. Smith Esquire. You may recognise pieces from his collection that are made in his London-based studio, but also his work of the iconic headpiece worn by Angelina Jolie in Magnificent. We hope you enjoy hearing part of Justin's story in this episode today. This was made possible. Thank you to the support of our wonderful podcast sponsors. These include Hatter's Millinery Supplies, the Millinery Association of Australia, Catherine Cherry Millinery, Hat Academy, The Essential Hat, Hat Atelier, Louise MacDonald Milliner, That Millinery, and we'd like to welcome House of Adorn as a new podcast sponsor. Thank you so much to all of these businesses for their support. You can find a link to each of their websites in our show notes, which is on your podcast app or on our website. We'd love to invite you to become a sponsor of this podcast series. Everyone is welcome, and it's a great way you can show your support if you're interested in able. You can head to www.patreon.com forward slash millineryinfo, or there is a link on our website. If you have any questions about being a sponsor, just send us through a message, and we'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much Justin for joining me today to talk hats. Um, you're in your London studio today and a question I always like to start with is how did you become involved with millinery?
1: Ah, uh, That's a big question. Um, <laughs> I, it's kind, I actually started life as a hairdresser. So I started hairdressing at about the age of 17, went through lots of my study, came to London and then I was always super interested in doing avant-garde hairdressing, so I was kind of creating sculptural works out of hair, essentially. Um, so I joined a company called Tony and Guy, which, you know, do a do a lot of big shows around the world, yes. and m- managed to kind of become head of their avant-garde quite quickly in my career. So then I started to just do big shows, mostly working with Sasha Muscolo, who's mostly runs Tony and Guy. And um, yes. just doing really crazy sculptural hair stuff, really. I mean, I was working in the salon as well. So I was obviously building my skills. I was teaching, coloring, cutting, all the rest of it. Um, but then the avant-garde work was really my passion. And then as I was developing, I suppose, over the first five years of doing that avant-garde work, I'd become a finalist for lots of hair awards, all this kind of stuff. Um, I felt like the medium was a bit limiting, I suppose. So I'd learned a bit about Buckram because a few people had told me about weird things that I could start to use as foundations for the hair work. And then through that, I kind of thought, OK, well, maybe I should go on a millinery course to learn a little bit more about balance and weight and proportion to push my avant-garde work more. And in that process, I went on a beginner's course and made my first bowler hat. And um, the rest is history, basically. (laughs) (laughs) I'd been with and Guy about six, nearly seven years. I was kind of wanting to get out of a big institution and go on my own in terms of hairdressing and set up my own salon. So then I did a a millinery course in my final year with them. And then after that first millinery course, I set up my own salon and then that gave me the ability to have more autonomy with my time. I wasn't doing the big shows anymore with Tony and Guy. I wasn't traveling the world and doing like collections based on a seasonal thing to do with that the shows that they did, which was a lot every year. They did different ones in America and the UK, et cetera. They traveled around. So then the third beginner's course, then an intermediate course, then advanced course, and then um, a Kensington and Chelsea, a HMC course of three days a week. And then I heard about the Royal College of Art. And seven years later, I'd studied loads of millinery alongside running the hair salon and um, started to make a few bespoke commissions for people. But because I was also in that photographic world, of um, making pieces to put in photos and, you know, advertising that kind of stuff. A few people borrowed some of my work for magazines and that started a whole ream of stuff really, because then the magazines borrowed my work. I came out of the Royal College, I ended up starting a brand and it kind of it spiraled through, you know, like most milliners, an obsession to, <laughs> to make hats essentially.
0: And when you went in, did you always have the um, ambition or the the prospect that you might start your own millinery studio and brand out of that? Or did you have a vision of what that might turn into?
1: Um, I think so, yeah. I always wanted to have my own salon in hairdressing and I've always wanted like my own autonomy and always been a bit stubborn in terms of like what I wanted to do. So when I was with Tony and Guy I always wanted to do my own collections, I showed with them, I was teaching a lot of the stuff that I was developing myself, so it was always kind of quite a headstrong approach to things. And then just the millinery spiral then came out of the Royal College and it seemed like a really natural progression for me after running my own salon anyway. So then start doing a lot of the millinery off my own back and I got a free place at London Fashion Week. So that was kind of a little bit like, just seemed really natural. I mean, you know, it yeah, that it just seemed very natural to just start carrying on doing my own thing. And really the hairdressing, all the exhibition work and I still do avant-garde work and it still influences my brand very much to this day so that was always like something that I carried on doing I had my client list I had my salon to run so actually the millinery could take an organic you know growth pattern alongside actually like you know making the business work essentially so so yes that seems supernatural and I've always yeah I've always kind of it just felt felt right I suppose
0: When you're designing either work for your avant-garde hair work or your millinery, do you find the two are influencing each other or it's a little bit of a silo design experience for you?
1: No, they totally influence each other. I mean, in the in the hairdressing, I was always interested in vintage and I always looked at like very old Hollywood. And, you know, all my hairdressing was inspired by a lot of film and theatre anyway. So then I suppose as I started to do millinery, I wanted to start making things that look like hairstyles and um, lots of traditional hats like top hats, but like trying to push the boundaries of what does a top hat look like from which era? And then how do we modernise that a little bit? So it's completely like... It's just a soup for me of many different things. You know, when I started doing my label, everyone was like, well, you've come out of women's wear, so you must be women's wear. And I'm like, I don't, I don't get that. And I've never seen that. And I've always been pretty adamant to stick to that. But I don't photograph anything, uh, any of my collections on generally a, a masculine or a feminine head or or model of any description when I do photo shoots a lot of the time the men end up wearing the women's hats and it all ends up being a, like I said a soup of different things anyway so yeah so it's always been just like kind of you know d- different inventions and different ideas based on what I love about headwear and what I love about style and personal style and then let whoever that whoever finds them take them and do what they will with them you know so I like that to have you know make a little object like a little sculpture but then not really dictate its its future you know I think that each hat has a little like if if it each hat wrote a diary for itself it would be kind of amazing what it did because a lot of the time you do it for a photo shoot it ends up on a model's head and then you might sell it to somebody and then it travels the world or then it sometimes goes out to photo shoots so it's been traveling the world without me going to different places so it's always like got a different Each object that you make seems to have a different trajectory based on who kind of likes it and who picks up on it, essentially. And that's what I really like about each collection. And that also informs the next design and the next approach, you know, so...
0: Yeah. So I was going to ask you about your collections because on, um, on your website you have some um, of your collections listed and I noticed they're um, labelled more not to an autumn winter year but a uh, more of a title of the collection. I wondered if you could maybe share a little bit about that and maybe why you chose that approach as opposed to a, I guess a particular label of a, a season or year.
1: Yeah, I don't fit. I think, like, following on from what I just said, I don't really see my collections f- fitting into like autumn, winter or spring, summer. Um, I don't particularly serve a particular kind of client that kind of like goes to a special events at one time of the year and not others. It's always been making objects that people will cherish and love and have in their wardrobe forever. And ideally like that will develop and change with them, but it's a, it's a staple piece within their wardrobe. So I guess my collections were always inspired by themes Or ideas or obsessions that I had at the time and then that drove the experimentation within the fabrics themselves to let the kind of like collection kind of find its own way so one was called illuminated so it was all transparent silks you know and some of it was masks and some of it was flowers and it was all very much based on you know an illumination of flowers I suppose Um, have other collections called Black which was all photographed black on black and it was really trying to strip everything back down to what is my brand after 10 years of doing it and what is my silhouette and what do people see my brand as I suppose that's unique so each collection really just has its own entity and then I think it sits in that world so for the first seven years I was showing at fashion week and it was very much like an autumn winter spring summer whatever I had to fit into that kind of category because that's where I was effectively ex- exhibiting my work but most of my stock is always bought my collections based on pieces not based on you know that they would sell it maybe in the next month or two but really that they would become part of their collection or become part of a mood that they were creating or sometimes I reference this this collection I did before but then I'll do it again the following season but it'll be in a different fabric or a different mood so it's it's a continuous development of technique and ideas based on you know my passion essentially which leads it all forward rather than um, feeling that it has to kind of yes, yeah, serve a particular kind of environment, I suppose. I, may, I make a lot of straw hats for winter for people, for example, which is kind of, you know, unusual, but I make tall straw top hats with linings and, you know, kind of mix it up. And I think that that flavor in somebody's wardrobe is really important to actually be able to offer something unique and different and a bit inspiring rather than following a kind of formula of, um, of, of what we need to stick to.
0: And um, over those um, at least 10 years you've been working on these collections, has the way you've approached that changed very much?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think in the beginning it was a lot based on PR and what people were telling me to do and what people were expecting to see from me, including being very inventive. And then over the time, I guess that I have found my own voice and been more headstrong about what I wanted to say. And actually, like, as after seven years of showing on the fashion industry, I felt like I wanted to move and change away from that um, environment. So then I started to go and do my own collections based on every year or two or three. I mean, I think there was three years in between the black collection and the gold collection, which are the most, two most recent that I've done. And now I treat it more like kind of art collections, I suppose. So then I showed in an art gallery and um, a lot of the... in. Pieces from the gold collection which was after 12 years of having a brand were inspired by everything that I had learned and trying to extend and grow but also a culmination of like two or three years of collecting fabrics where I kind of go oh that's nice or oh that's lovely or oh I love this shape and people seem to respond to it well it looks really good on everybody but wouldn't it be nice in x so it's always a development of like technique and inspiration that leads to like trying to always make it you know, more grow in a way and, and and have more solid shapes. And I guess when I've stopped the fashion industry because I wasn't working on that cycle of autumn, winter, spring, summer, I've had a lot more focus on like what is the Jasmine Squire identity what do I bring to the table what hats have I got in my wardrobe that I love because every collection if I find something that I really love that looks good on me it stays in my wardrobe and that was actually a a starting point for like kind of developing my brand to be really more truly me than what I was doing in the Mm. beginning which was based around PR and trying to grow my business and grow my brand and you know of course when you first start you're experimenting you want people to notice what you're doing Um, you make a lot of things that people ask you to make that push you into a different direction or stockists ask you to do different colorways which you would never experiment with and suddenly you like it so it's always you know a development of that and then I guess that yeah you just as you grow up as a brand you develop and grow that with your your style more and for me it's all. Sort of my brand has always been a case of like I don't want a brand I don't want to be like globally recognized and super famous it's all more about I want to have autonomy on what I want to do and say so then that has also been become stronger as I've become more developed as a designer I guess.
0: So between those um, collections you mentioned there was a three-year gap but during that time, you're obviously still producing hats and pieces. Um, during that time, are your customers coming in to purchase? Do they purchase things they've seen on your website and they go, I want that particular hat? Or are they coming in going, I've seen this, but I kind of want it like this or I want something completely different? What's that process like?
1: Well, when now I work bespoke, so most of the pieces end up becoming like pieces that stay in my in my personal collection I maybe sell about 40 to 50 percent of them over time when they find the head that suits them Um, and then the rest of them become like models that actually people will come in and try on but they kind of go I love this but it won't go with my blue suit because it's not the right color or you know because they're staple pieces that will last in people's wardrobe forever and I have a real kind of focus on being a hairdresser So you can't cut somebody's fringe in if it doesn't suit their hair type or doesn't look good on their face. So that's really my approach to millinery is that you can buy stuff off the shelf and it might look fine. Um, And I think for certain types of millinery that works incredibly well, but for my type of millinery, it's more, it's more bespoke. It's more personal. It needs to be curated around the wearer and also what they're wearing. So Mm -hmm. the hat doesn't necessarily wear them, but it's also, it's part of the, combination of things that, that beautify and, and, and bring the elegance so, um, so now it's really a case of a lot of the pieces are used as a reference and then sold bespoke and then like I said if somebody comes in and tries it on and take it out the window and they absolutely love it well then I'll sell it to them as a unique piece and some people love that and they want it as a unique piece and nobody else will have and other people are quite happy for me to remake it in their size or you know I work really quite truly bespoke so I take head measurements and wire shapes of exactly this this skull that I'm working from so that for me is 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 super important and and that needs to kind of harmonize with whoever's buying the pieces and I, I guess when I was doing the fashion industry as well it was quite a lot of the time people would say to me I really like this collection but can you do it in silver or can you do it in this so I ended up doing exclusive ranges for shops anyway because that was my price point they wanted something exclusive and actually I make everything by hand I don't make anything in a factory where it's going to be a number that then they have to order from stock. So actually then it, it taught me how to behave more bespoke with all of my clients, whether that be working with a shop or anybody that comes into my shop as a personal client. Um, and then that, I suppose, yeah, has, led, has, has found its feet. And now I do a lot more personal client work, whether that be through film or celebrities or people that come into my shop than I do work on b- bespoke collections for shops to sell through to another source. I go more direct to the, the end where people are wearing them.
0: So we're, we are speaking during COVID um, lockdowns at the moment. So I understand some of this is a bit um, unusual, but <laughs> I guess the- back and hopefully looking looking forward to the future at one point what's do most of your customers come in, into your store or do you have people who you're doing remotely and digitally um, send, sending them or they'll just place an order and you you, uh ship it to them what's your exchange like with your customer
1: yeah i mean i can totally work remotely and then if they usually send me a head size i can make it to fit them pretty good Um, if it's like a high-end client or quite a specific job then i actually make a wire head shape up and then i'll educate the client send that to them in the post educate them on actually fitting it if it was like a turban for instance i'll make the base of the turban send it to them in the post and they'll put it on take photos of themselves or we'll get on skype or zoom or whatever and um and then i can see how that fits and then i can work you know, and remotely relatively well, not as good as if it's bespoke because of course with your hands on somebody and head shapes are really important to me to get the silhouette of things right. Um, But it is totally possible to still do bespoke on a remote level. And for a lot of my film work, a lot of the... You know, the A-listers are all kind of like in their houses in the middle of Scotland or, you know, like they're somewhere else that you can't get to or their schedule is such that you can see them the day before when they start filming. But you don't get much time, 24 hours to, to fit, to actually make that thing a reality. So then I always try and push to get that fitting underway more remotely quickly. So then even if that turban base is put on top of them and I can see their eyebrows and you can't see their eyes because it's way too big, then at least you've got a guide as to you know how the bespoke is going to work so you know and I think my hairdressing background gives me a a very good lead and steer on all that kind of thing because I have you know 20 plus years experience in actually like doing hair on people's heads so the fitting and the you know, the curation of that piece around somebody's head is, is, like I said to me, like a haircut, which is really key to my work, actually being successful and looking the best that it possibly can. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the last few months, I've made pieces remotely and we've done exactly what I've described. But, more, you know, more often than not, I try and get people to come to the shop and have a proper fitting or I go and visit them.
0: Um, So you have um, a shop front what's the setup like you have a showroom do you have your studio space there as well where you produce or what's the layout.
1: It's the whole, it encompasses everything because it came from being a salon before and then that salon, the waiting room got turned into a millinery studio (laughs) and all my clients kind of sat in the millinery studio while waiting for a haircut. It's kind of gradually just translated into that. So now I have a window space where I have all like exhibiting my work and then moving backwards a little bit from that was kind of a fitting chair and then lots of pieces that are in process. So a big wall of stuff that's like half made so people can really engage with the true bespoke nature of it and then the main body of the shop is like my desk and machines and and the, the 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 real kit. Um, it's a very long straight shop so you can see from front to back so you can see all of it from the window which I love because people see me cutting cloth and really getting my hands in there you know and then at the back of the shop there is like another fitting mirror with like mirrors all the way around so you can see every single angle of yourself and that's where I'm also hairdressing which I continue to do and see a lot of my regular clients even now so that's an important aspect of it so it's like you know it encompasses everything essentially and that changes as as I develop or with every big job I do a piece of furniture gets moved and you know it's it's kind of part of telling the story I can't help myself or someone will give me a glass cabinet that suddenly ends up being part of my shop and that becomes <laughs> part of the display and you know it's not a it's not a fixed identity that has to say a certain thing it's it's really again a, a creative space where people kind of go and get bombarded by <laughs> so much visual stuff like <laughs> yes. parrots on top of cupboards and <laughs> all sorts of stuff like that so it's a kind of exhibition space, creative space, development space as much as it is a shop yeah and I don't expect to have walk-ins I work by appointment only And then that way, then I liaise with that client before they come, when they come to the shop. Um, I've always worked like this anyway, but now with the the COVID situation, it seems to be even more kind of poignant somehow. But then when that client comes, I've got a lot of the, the table full of all the things that they kind of want to try on. So maybe they're looking for a straw hat that looks a bit like a trail bee. So then I'll kind of like dig out some bits from my archive, take some bits out the window. So then you get a proper kind of fitting and a proper kind of service with actually that that you know touch on that person's head and inevitably what they decide they like in the window won't be what they actually want to see on their head because it's you know working with their face shape so they so then you have to take the essence of what they've fallen in love with out the window and then show them other pieces to explain how I work and the sense of quality between you know different different straws for instance and then that starts a dialogue into the bespoke and then it goes from there. They usually come back for a second fitting, possibly even a third.
0: And you mentioned in there about some film work and uh, you created the headpiece for Angelina Jolie for Maleficent. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 I'd love to hear about that process. Um, How did how did that come about? What was it like creating the piece? Could you share with us a little bit about that?
1: So the Maleficent Headdress was just amazing. I guess it was, one of my friends was working in film and I'd been looking to get into film for a long time, TV, film, it was one of those things that I was trying to get in from the beginning and slowly, slowly you do little bits and bobs and then they see more of your work and my website was building more and more. So then I had like a very big archive on my website and then Angelina came across my work and they had had a, uh, several other milliners have a go at making the Maleficent Headdress and she, um, wanted to develop it further so she found me and called me in for a meeting and that's kind of where it started we hit it off and um yeah we hit it off really well so then I started to do things over the first course of a week make some samples for her and then she's really heavily involved in like her identity and her mm-hmm. approach and she loves the creative approach to it all. So she loves the way I work with like working around the head shape and trying to adorn the head to make it better. So then we just developed developed it right from the very beginning the first piece was done in like something insane like 48 hours so that was a little bit like baptism of fire but then once we got off the ground with like kind of figuring out exactly what silhouette we were going to give her and what materials we were going to work in then it was a case of creating an identity and then keeping trying to push that identity to new realms so you know the first one like I said was a baptism of fire and then we kind of like Developed it quite a bit and really got this kind of animalistic approach, using different kinds of skins and things like that. And then Maleficent 2 was a development on the first one, so I pulled out everything from my archive that I had from the first one, and um, just kept developing it and trying to do new things in new ways and 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 to try and you know push the character. Um, and like I said, she de- she developed. She's very involved in that process so with every final piece that you end up with there might have been seven or eight pieces that are almost come to completion before she chooses the final one that she wants so yeah. um mm-hmm. and that is obviously in conjunction with the costume designer and how the costume takes shape and maybe she's got like you know a cape going in the first bit and it suddenly turns into a skirt so then you have to kind of change the silhouette a little bit of what you're doing so um so yeah, that's kind of how it worked, And it was quite, I, I'd done quite a few different movies before that point, but that's that was really the biggest, most iconic thing that I had done to that date. And then um, that really kind of like got me into the film world in a big way. And now I work with quite a lot of costume designers trying to come up with, you know, new and interesting characters and, and also give kind of iconic looks And I think that's kind of one of the key points to my brand, I suppose, is that, you know, coming from the hairdressing perspective and and working, trying to be as inventive as possible and not be seasonal as possible. It's always trying to kind of find that thing that will make something kind of iconic and give it a real flavor, but then also not give it something that necessarily feels totally vintage or totally like exactly what it was before, but a development and a modernization of to push it to the next the next level. So, and is fantastic in terms of seeing that. She knows what she wants and she kind of like, you know, will continue to push her team around her to get to that level where she really sees that character and then she can embody that character in her, in her approach to her acting.
0: For the, you made some pieces for um, Doolittle, what was that process like? Um, and what pieces, how many did you create for that production?
1: Oh, so Doctor Dolittle was fun. Um, You know, it's like a really cute story. I remember growing up watching the movies. So, you know, for me, that was like a really exciting one to be involved with. Um, I work with uh, Jenny Bevan, who's the costume designer who won the Oscar from Mad Max. And I've been working with her on quite a few films. Um, Lovely lady, really lovely lady. I actually do her hair as well. So it's really nice to have like (laughs) You know, like personal contact with her. Um, yes. And that's actually how I met her before I started working with her in millinery. Somebody that I worked with in film met, knew her and she was complaining, like saying that she's got really curly hair and can't find a hairdresser to cut it. And I was recommended and suddenly I ended up, you know, meeting her. And then, so then Doolittle, we worked together and it was really nice to do menswear for film you know it was really nice to to work on a lead character that actually like you know has a bit of a style but then you want to try and push that personality to you know a kind of a slightly new or inventive level but of course still sit within the remit of who this character really is so um when Jenny came I showed her some of my work my previous collections before and she really loved the asymmetrical top hat that I did in my black collection which is essentially kind of a top hat but it's got like a wonky brim on it leather underneath the brim polished kind of like a fur felt top super nice super classic but kind of like a bit odd and um she yeah. loved that hat so that was the first point, point where she started because she could show the director the, the example from my collection um she, this is something already to so kind of like a starting point to start forming the character so then that that piece we've remade but in a brown so that was really the first piece we made and then usually make two or three of each piece so I think I made about three of those and then I think believe we did three different other styles Um, the other one that's really notable was a straw top hat that was really lovely very tall slightly taller than normal Um, really nice straw like a strip straw but then also I was working with the breakdown department who kind of paint and age everything and um, got a lot of friends in Breakdown and uh, and when somebody took that hat, a friend of mine Greer and actually painted it and hand painted exactly, you know, each of the straw bits okay. to make it really look aged and and really make it look super characterful. So that one for me was probably my favorite because although the asymmetrical top hat is kind of iconic and it was on the poster and it was part of from something from my collection. So that's always really nice when that happens. Uh, the straw top hat was really beautiful because I make this object, it's really gorgeous. It leaves my studio like, oh, it's a nice fancy new top hat. And then I suddenly see it coming back from my friend Greer and it's like, oh my God, like, it looks like a different piece. It's like turning it into an art piece. You know, yeah, so each one is like hand painted and, and got it brings like an essence to, to my work that, you know, I love about working in film full stop is that I love doing what I do and I love my discipline, but it's not always about what I do. It's about I am a tool in the toolkit and everybody together makes that whole thing, you know, really shine and make it turn into what it is. So by collaborating with other people on every film, it really brings a whole new essence to the pieces that I make and pushes them in a different direction than I would have necessarily taken them myself. So it was nice to see that straw top hat done like that. And she had spent a lot of time painting it and it's, you know, yeah, it's really, i really, really love and appreciate that. And everybody else's different discipline and how obsessed they are about their discipline. Like I am with mine. And you know, that collective energy really creates what it is in, in film or TV or on screen. And, you know, I think that's I really enjoy that a lot
0: yeah and so you mentioned you make multiples sometimes of pieces um how do you manage that in terms of material like uh is that always possible are there limitations to that and how do you manage that process of making sure that you get three or four that look identical?
1: Yeah, I mean, with those top hats, they're quite. It was kind of easy-ish because a lot of the time they were made of materials that you can readily get. So they weren't vintage materials, and then actually the breakdown department is their challenge to actually make all three of them or all four of them hand painted in exactly the same way to make them look the same, or maybe some one of them ends up in water and then it needs to be something different needs to be done to it. You know, so the continuity comes a lot of the time from the breakdown as much as it does from the actual finished piece um it's relatively straightforward because I've been doing, working in fashion and doing production. You can kind of make one or two or three of similar things. And, you know, it, it gets complicated when you've done something and you've just made it, you know, super creative. And then you kind of have to look at it and go, oh, I don't even remember how I made it. And then you've got to make two <laughs> more of them. But I've become a bit of a wizard. At, like somebody can give me a photo of something, whether it be a vintage hat that their dad used to own or something that was in a film before. And I can pretty much replicate it to, to, the, to the button, even with the size and texture so um, so yeah generally it's it's perfectly fine if we work with like vintage materials and a lot of the time we do in film because you want something unique and has to have a certain texture and identity then actually we'll only go into those vintage fabrics if we know we've got enough to start with generally. And it does depend a lot on the film too, um, because some people will do, they usually say one is none. (laughs) So you need a minimum of two in case something happens to one, right? But actually some some costume designers are less strict about that than others. Some like two or three, and it's a big Disney movie, so they'll end up in museums or they'll end up in exhibitions. So it's very important to have a few examples of that thing to create that costume in a few different areas. And then other people know that they've only got one scene, they're filming for one day, and it might be something like that they're not even doing very much in and then they're quite happy to just have the one because they, if you've only got a tiny bit of vintage fabric and it's super unique. That brings more to the table than having to replicate it. So if we ever need to replicate it, we can kind of have fabric made or something that looks similar for an exhibition. So it's you know, like a, it, it, it's relatively the same. Um, if that's where, if that, you know, is necessary for, for the future of, of the movie.
0: So and you've also made pieces for um, Star Wars The Last Jedi. Um, what was I think it, uh, How do these experiences differ? Are there similarities between them or they just can be vastly different depending on I guess the team and the designer? Oh
1: yeah, it's very different. Like with Jenny, I've worked on quite a few films now and actually I just finished working on one, doing Cruella with her. So that was like really nice because you work with a similar team. Um, they have a similar process. You know, every designer has their process, the way they like to work. Some people love a whole table full of stuff and they need to see it. Other people give you a drawing and know exactly what they want. So um, so with Star Wars, I was working with Michael Kaplan and he's... Um, He's got a very keen eye. He knows exactly what he wants. His drawings are fantastic. He'll have a really brilliant research and development room. It's all referenced off Star Wars that come before as well. So there's of course that element to it. Um, And then it's a kind of collaboration in a way, certainly with Star Wars, he was very much like, show me what you can do and what you imagine which was just That's fantastic because movie. it's this come yeah really a totally different brief than working with something like Doolittle where he's definitely wearing a hat you know and a top hat and it needs to have a silhouette to it Star Wars it was like what can you come up with and how fantastical can you be we're creating a world that essentially they fly into and it's a black and white world on a different planet where everybody's got loads of money. So it was like, okay, how opulent and, and ridiculous can we make this, you know? So they had big room with lots of fabrics to play with. That a lot of the outfits were coming from anyway. So I would see what dresses were made or what suits were made and and then go off and, and kind of have a play and trying to push my millinery skills and techniques into that world of creating fantastical kind of shapes and ideas Um, and we were doing, that was really nice because it was a whole crowd scene so a lot of the time in film I work with a principal actor or one or two principal actors. So it's a little bit more specific. You have to work with that actor sometimes or work with the costume designer, but it's very focused with star Wars. It was kind of, I was doing a lot for the principals as well, but ultimately the main scene that I was there for was the black and white scene and we needed about a hundred hats. So it was just the case of like, rah, let's just make loads of loads of different things. And, and essentially it was more about styling on the day of what went with what, and then it, when we saw stuff that we really liked, maybe we would make a version bigger for a different character or you know it, it kind of unfolded over a period of months. I was working at Pinewood for about four months on that job, I think. Um, so so that was you know it was fantastic and uh, fantastic to get that kind of brief of just show me how crazy and ridiculous you can make it with this remit you know with these fabrics and with this kind of identity that you're trying to create so it was very nice to also make everything black or white for a combination yeah really fun really fun and actually i worked with michael on set as well on the day to actually style everybody so everybody was kind of running around just making sure that the hats were fitted on the dresses properly everyone was wearing them correctly you know because they go off and they get put on heads by the hair team and there was about 200 people plus at least on set so you know you need to go on set right just before the camera shoots and make sure that everything's kind of positioned right and sometimes the, the thing in the front of the camera will be something that you don't expect because you don't quite know where the cameras are coming from on the day so you know it's all about kind of changing that a little bit making sure that that it works with each shot really so yeah, you know, it was a fun, really fun job and amazing to work on something like Star Wars I also needed to make some of the like the super iconic kind of military hats as well for some of the lead actors so um, that was really nice because I was taking something that everybody knows of the um, the actual iconic kind of military shapes, but then actually trying to make that a completely bespoke item made out of the same fabric for the principal. So that was really nice because then that's turning my hand to taking that photo and that style that's been made already that's been in all the films and then actually turn that into a bespoke item to make sure it fits and suits that principal character's face really well. So that's a really nice Different completely different angle because one minute I'm making kind of whatever I fantasize in my head and the more Crazy and inventive the better really and then on the other side. It's all about my bespoke skills and how to Really curate something That already has an identity, but make it look right for that person's face and that's um, That's a really a very enjoyable part of the, my millinery that I really you know really like that really true bespoke aspect to it
0: so yeah. Yeah. And with these um, theatrical projects, are they something that you're able to do within your workroom or do you, do you go into their workspaces to, to complete that?
1: With, um, just depends again with Star Wars and with Maleficent I've worked at Pinewood on set with either the costume designer because I'm working very closely with them and I'm doing a lot of pieces so we have to kind of work very focused for a period of time. Or with Maleficent the same thing, working very closely with Angelina in conjunction with her and the costume designer, but I need to be on set all the time. I'm fitting it all the time. And then with uh, Dr. Doolittle and Cruella, Jenny Bevan comes to the studio, do a bit of a show and tell of everything that I've done before. She maybe says that she's looking for something, a particular type of hat and then I'll pull out lots of pieces from my archive for when she comes so then that starts our inspiration off and then I pretty much make everything from my studio and then just go into the 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 set for fittings so yeah it really just depends on the kind of team that you're working with and how they like to work really some people keep their work room quite small and keep the fittings really tiny to kind of like have more control and, and and keep it kind of a bit easier for the actual principal and other times it's just you know a big soup of just everybody going for it because there's a lot to do in a short period of time and it's easier to be uh, you know there on set so yeah yeah.
0: And how do you manage that time so that takes you away from your studio and your other pieces? How do you find the, you know, how do you manage that and balance, balance those commitments out?
1: I kind of like all those aspects. I love going to do fittings. I love the true bespoke. I like people coming to the shop because it's fun. Of course, everybody gets to come into my world <laughs> and it's full of crazy objects and inspiration. And, uh, and then I really love going on set. I love seeing, you know, uh, well it's such an amazing experience and it's such a blessing to be able to be involved with these things. Going on set on Star Wars, you know, and working and made a headdress for Carrie Fisher on Star Wars, you know, and to see her mm-hmm. laying down wearing this headdress or so then the next minute we we were she was it looked like she was laying in a box, but actually it was a rubber version of her. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that we're then putting a hat, putting a hat on, and it this rubber version basically really lifelike, unbelievable. Even her head had weights, so somebody was okay. lifting up her head while I was putting the headdress on. So you know, and that's just amazing the aspects to my work that you get to do so many different, so many different things. That that that's that's really really fun, and of course that's nice and energizing and and you know I don't mind at all the work taking me out of my studio. It gets complicated when you have to go and work appointment for two or three months of course you take your entire studio with you so it's like <laughs> constantly a moving process of kits, you know you have to be quite on the ball in terms of always having what you need but I think that's my cub scout mentality always coming in I hardly ever forget anything I've always got tools in my pockets and you know there's always always being prepared for as many situations as possible
0: do you have a sneak peek of what we can look forward to seeing some of your pieces in soon
1: oh yeah the mentioning Cruella that's all coming out soon so that'll be really fun to to see and I think that's going to be really um should be exciting and kind of amazing costume wise i think jenny bevan was doing it again so um yeah so that 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 will be really exciting and then i've been working a little bit on um a tv program as well called bridgerton which comes out soon and that's like a tv series set in the 1800s wow. um with a costume designer called ellen moroznik and i worked with her on the second maleficent so she also did um, The Greatest Showman is something you probably know her for the costume yes. form as well so she's a wonderful really wonderful lady really fabulous to work with her she's got a really keen eye she loves being shown things and you can show her new and interesting things and you know she'll kind of go that's amazing but make it completely transparent <laughs> and you're like oh no okay good <laughs> so it's a way about kind of pushing you know the boundaries and trying to and see what can come next. And it is a, like I it's, it's a dialogue of, of what of creativity as well. So that's, you know, that'll be exciting to see. So that's a couple that are coming out.
0: Well, we'll, we'll um. keep an eye out for them and we'll look forward to seeing some of your pieces. Thank you so much for chatting hats with me, Justin. It's been lovely to speak with you.
1: You're welcome. You're welcome. My pleasure.
0: Thank you for joining us today for this episode with Justin. We hope you enjoyed hearing about his story. We'd like to thank our Patreon podcast sponsors. Hatter's Millinery Supplies, The Millinery Association of Australia, Catherine Cherry Millinery, Hat Academy, The Essential Hat, Hat Atelier, Louise MacDonald Milliner, That Millinery, and House of Adorn. You can find a link to each of their businesses in our show notes. Would you like to become a sponsor of this series? We'd love to have you. It starts from just $15 a month and is run through a platform called Patreon. As part of your sponsorship, you'll receive a thank you in the monthly podcast, just like that, a link to your business on our website, and in our newsletter. We hope you've been enjoying this series. If you're a new listener, we hope you get a chance to scroll back through the episodes and enjoy the full series and find your favourites. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much for your support. It's really appreciated. We hope that you might send on your favourite podcast to a fellow millinery friend. It's a great way to connect and keep each other company in the workroom, when it might not be possible to be there ourselves. Remember, you can subscribe to our email list or to Millinery info in your podcast app so you don't miss when the next episode's released. We hope you've enjoyed this episode with Justin and look forward to speaking with you soon.